You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Eastern European gangs overcome their reservations about working with Anglophone criminals. Mirth Connect is vulnerable to a critical flaw. A look at a mercenary spyware strain. PepsiCo as fish bait. Ben Yellen explains the FCC's renewed interest in net neutrality. Our guest is Wade Baker from the Scientia Institute with insights on measuring risk. And Europol thinks police should take a good look at quantum computing and law enforcement. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Friday, October 27th, 2023. Microsoft describes OctoTempest, a financially motivated threat actor that uses social engineering to compromise organizations around the world, Microsoft researchers write, In mid-2023, OctoTempest became an affiliate of AlphaV Black Cat, a human-operated ransomware-as-a-service operation, and initial victims were extorted for data theft with no ransomware deployment using AlphaV Collection's leak site. This is notable in that historically, Eastern European ransomware groups refused to do business with native English-speaking criminals. By June 2023, OctoTempest started deploying AlphaV Black Cat ransomware payloads, both Windows and Linux versions, to victims, and lately has focused their deployments primarily on VMware ESXi servers. OctoTempest progressively broadened the scope of industries targeted for extortion, including natural resources, gaming, hospitality, consumer products, retail, managed service providers, manufacturing, law, technology, and financial services. Among the gang's victims, the record points out, was MGM Resorts. At the time of that attack, the group was being called Scattered Spider, Octopus, or UNC-3944. One of the more repellent features of OctoTempest's activity is its willingness to make direct personal threats of violence to bully victims into giving up their credentials. A sample threat reads as follows... If we don't get your login in the next 20 minutes, we're sending a shooter to your house. Your wife is going to get shot if you don't fold it. Let me know. We'll send shooters to both. LOL. It's even worse in print than it is read aloud, and there's a lot more than this. It's not just the elite speak, the LOLs, when referring to shootings. These aren't just misled kids. The octo-tempest crooks are suffering from a bad case of internet disinhibition. 
Security Week reports that Mirth Connect, an open-source data integration platform developed by NextGen Healthcare, is vulnerable to a flaw that could allow attackers to bypass protections for a critical severity remote code execution flaw that was patched in August. Researchers at Horizon3.ai discovered the new flaw, noting that it was fixed in version 4.4.1 of Mirth Connect. The researchers state, We urge all users of Mirth Connect, especially instances that are internet-facing, to prioritize updating. Researchers at Hyas Labs have published an analysis of the Predator spyware developed by Cytrox. The researchers note that Sequoia, earlier this month, found evidence suggesting that the spyware may have been used by the Madagascar government. One of the recurrent concerns about spyware products, or lawful intercept tools, as they're also called, is the perennial temptation to abuse by governments they represent. Inky is tracking a phishing campaign that's impersonating PepsiCo to deliver malware. Inky says, As usual, it all starts with a phishing email. In this case, the phishers are impersonating the PepsiCo brand, pretending to be potential clients. They're claiming to need what the recipient sells, and they're asking them to submit a quote for PepsiCo to review. What the would-be victim doesn't know is that attached to the email is a malicious disk image disguised as an RFQ. That is, a request for quote. The U.S. State Department is attempting to pre-bunk Russian disinformation campaigns, the New York Times reports, operating from the premise that disinformation is easier to discredit and refute before it begins to spread through amplification in legitimate and semi-legitimate channels. The effort works by identifying disinformation operations in their earliest phases and by exposing the fronts and agents of influence before they can begin repeating their themes. Pre-bunking is part refutation, that is, addressing the false claims on their merits, and part transparency, identifying the fronts and trolls as such before they gain traction. ESET's APT activity report for the second and third quarter of 2023 matches unpatched vulnerabilities with government-sponsored offensive cyber operations. Unsurprisingly, Russian cyber activity retains its focus on Ukraine. The main Russian APT group's ESET tracks are Sandworm, Turla, Sednit, and Gamaradon. ESET says that the greatest of these, from the Ukrainian perspective, is Gamaradon, which significantly enhanced its data-collecting capabilities by redeveloping existing tools and deploying new ones. The others aren't to be dismissed either, the French security agency ANSI warned yesterday that Fancy Bear, APT28, or Sednet, whichever name you prefer, has succeeded in penetrating sensitive networks in France. The targeting is commonplace for an espionage campaign. Fancy Bear has been interested in government agencies, businesses, universities, research institutes, and think tanks. Cyber Daily reports that no name 05716 specialists in nuisance-level DDoS attacks, has put Australia on notice, No Name says, for its Russophobic contributions to Ukraine's war effort. The hacktivist auxiliary said it had hit sites belonging to Adelaide Bank's NetBank portal, the Transperth Transport Agency, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal's online portal, and the Northern Territory Department of Infrastructure Planning and Logistics. The hacktivist's communique deplored Australia's decision 
send a military aid package worth $12 million to Ukraine. The only effect the shipment will have, no name said, will be to give the Russians more material to capture. And besides, it amounts to theft from the Australian taxpayers. No name says, We are going to Australia for destroying portals of critical infrastructure. It's an overstatement. Only the TransPerth website sustained periodic and annoying disruption. The other three targets rode out the attack without much difficulty. And finally, Europol is urging its colleagues in law enforcement to think hard about the implications of quantum computing. Europol's Innovation Lab has published a report titled The Second Quantum Revolution, in which it outlines the potential implications of the new technology for law enforcement. Greater computational power promises new cryptographic challenges and new sensing opportunities. The report represents preparatory work. It urges agencies to stay aware of developments in the new field, and it summarizes its recommendations under five headings. Observe quantum trends, build up knowledge and start experimenting, foster research and development projects, assess the impact of quantum technologies on fundamental rights, and review your organization's transition plans. That is, of course, transition to the post-quantum future. And trust us, it's not going to look like the quantum realm from Ant-Man. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen explains the FCC's renewed interest in net neutrality. Our guest is Wade Baker from the Scientia Institute with insights on measuring risk. Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
Wade Baker is co-founder of the Scientia Institute and also a professor in the College of Business at Virginia Tech. Scientia Institute recently published the latest edition of their Information Risk Insights Study, or IRIS reports, focusing on threat event analysis. I checked in with Wade Baker for the details. I've done a lot of studies in the uh, information security space going back years and have always wanted to demonstrate how to quantify cyber losses. And I just haven't had the data to do it in the past. So I'm probably best known for starting and working on Verizon's uh, data breach investigations report for a long time. And we had phenomenal information about how incidents occur and who's behind them and how assets are impacted and how organizations respond. Uh, But we never had what are the losses? You know, how do those events impact organizations long after the forensic investigation is gone? So uh, the IRIS series information risk insight study is all about, you know, uh, what is the probability of an event and how much do those events cost and showing that you actually can come up with historically proven numbers on those kinds of things and you don't have to make it all guesswork. Hmm. Well, well, let's dig into some of the findings uh, from this year's version. Uh, What are some of the things that stood out to you? So uh, there are quite a few things, and and some of them are, I hate to say obvious because that sounds negative, but, you know, we get the opportunity to add data to some things that maybe we, we believe, and then, and, you know, in other cases, data overturns maybe what we believe. But just an example, you know, we do a lot uh, about how industry and size of organizations impact the probability of different types of loss events and, and how much uh, those events are. So, you know, what's probably not surprising is if you are a really large organization, uh, you are much, 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 much more likely to have a security incident than a really small organization, right? You have a bigger attack surface, you have brand recognition and maybe targeted attacks, all of those kinds of things. So, you know, that's that's one of those that's maybe not so incredibly obvious, uh, or sorry, is pretty pretty obvious. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, I think we have some other things that that um, maybe less so. You know, what's what what is the cost of a typical security incident? I think there's you ask anybody, lots of different opinions on that. You know, we found that the median loss is about two hundred sixty thousand dollars, and I get lots of different reactions when I say that. Some think that's whoa, that's r- ridiculously low. How can that possibly be? Others mm. uh, think that's that's high. Um, but you know, we're talking about all types of security incidents here. The the ninety fifth percentile loss is much larger. That's fifty two million, and I kind of think maybe that's part of the misconception is people think about the really big stuff that we hear about the headlines and forget about the sort of daily things that stack up, but, but don't cost a huge amount. Yeah. One of the challenges that that I find for myself personally is, is taking those numbers and making them meaningful. You know, there, there are all these numbers thrown around, but how do I align that with my own organization and, and how I should go about evaluating my own risk? hundred uh, percent. And, you know, it. I think that's a huge challenge because you. we hear of all of these reports uh, of incidents occurring and, you know, some terrible thing happens to another organization. And the obvious question is, hey, could that happen to us? And if so, what, what would that be like? 
Uh, and, and we try to tackle a few of those things in the report. One of the things that we do is, you know, we can measure losses objectively and say, hey, this was a $100 million loss. And what is the probability that any given organization experiences a $100 million loss? Okay, you can answer that. But we can also make that a little bit more relevant by looking at it as a proportion of revenue, you know, and asking the question, you know, what is the likelihood uh, that an, a small organization will have a loss that equals 1%, 10%, you know, 100% of their revenue versus, versus a large organization. And that is something that I think was a really important point in the latest IRIS is that um, smaller organizations are very disproportionately impacted by security events. In other words, it might be smaller amounts from a just straight dollars perspective, but as a proportion of their revenue, uh, even menial events can be, you know, a quarter or much higher uh, of their revenue. And that, that hurts a lot when you're a small company and margins are slim. You know, as you gather your data here, are, are there any um, myths that you want to dispel here? You know, I think about sometimes, I think folks call them zombie facts. You know, they're they're dead, but they keep on living, and we can't seem to shed them. Is any things like that in your findings? There is. There is one in particular that comes to mind uh, as a myth, and I'm not. I'm not going to name names here, but there is a a study that is very often cited that gives a straight dollar per record as a means of quantifying losses around an event. So if you have you know, it's $150 per record or $180 per record. And then you take the number of records that were compromised in an event, you multiply it by $150 and voila, you know, that's how much the event costs. And we do some picking apart of that because it is just dead wrong. Um, it, there is no such thing as a, as a linear dollar per record loss. The data time and time again shows this. And there are much, much better, more accurate ways of estimating losses given something like the amount of data that was compromised rather than just multiplying by, you know, a, a single amount. And that's that's a myth that we have tried, <laughs> you know, some say a little bit too hard in these reports to dispel, but it's, it still sticks around. Hmm. What do you hope people take away from this report in terms of actionable items? Uh, I am hoping that one, people will say that hey, we can quantify risk and therefore better manage it. Um, there's been a long time argument over whether that's possible. And I, I think if you read the iris and look at what we've done, uh, we've proven that, that you can actually do that. Uh, and then second, I, I hope that people look at some of this analysis and, and say, hey, I think, I think we could benefit from this. I would like to have this to aid my decisions on, you know, are we over at risk? Uh, what should we do about it? Uh, which threats are more relevant to my organization and those kinds of things? Because I, I really do think the time is far past in the management of cybersecurity that, that we take a more measured and risk-oriented approach. We always preach that. But uh, very few people get beyond sort of the high, medium, low type buckets applied to risk and realize that, that we, can, we can do this and, and the outcomes are going to be better. That's Wade Baker from the Scientia Institute. The report is IRIS, Threat Event Analysis.
And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, Interesting uh, story you and I talked about on this week's Caveat about uh, how the FCC, thanks to... Uh, having an additional member on their board is able to make a move here with net neutrality. What's going on here, Ben? So we finally have a Democratic majority on the FCC. The newest uh, nominee from President Biden was just confirmed recently by the Senate. Uh, Back in 2015, the Obama administration uh, initiated a rulemaking process that led to uh, net neutrality. Basically, the idea here is reclassifying broadband as a telecommunications service That allows the FCC to regulate internet service providers and make sure that they are not throttling uh, companies who want to have, want to use greater bandwidth. So things like Netflix and other streaming services. That's the point of maintaining that neutrality. So this doesn't become kind of a fee for service jungle uh, where the main providers, the Verizons, the AT&Ts of the world, Uh, are auctioning off this broadband space uh, to the highest bidder. Uh, The Trump administration came in in 2017 under the leadership of Ajit Pai. They got their own majority on the FCC, and they reversed Obama-era net neutrality rules. Uh, Basically, their rationalization then is that this was a 1930s-style regulation on the open internet, uh, that we should be fostering an open marketplace to the extent possible, And that this won't lead to the sort of parade of horribles um, that you would hear about in warnings in 2017, that we're going to lose our open internet, that net neutrality is going to cut against all the principles that make the internet great. In defense of Ajit Pai and his majority, I mean, we really haven't seen those types of impacts over the past several years. As far as we can tell, the internet is in pretty good shape. Streaming services work well without the need for this kind of heavy-handed federal government regulation. But the Biden administration is interested in reviving these Obama-era rules. So they're going through the rulemaking process right now. They're on the notice of proposed rulemaking stage. I'm sure industry is going to weigh in. The final rule will probably be published sometime in January or February, and then I think we can expect a lot of lawsuits uh, that are challenging Uh, the statutory authority for the FCC to take this action, and then possibly some constitutional issues uh, as well. So uh, certainly this is just the beginning of the story, uh, and we'll have to see what happens with both the rulemaking process and the almost certain court cases that we're going to see. Yeah. You know, I I think it's fair to say one thing that industry hates is uncertainty. And with this swinging back and forth, you've got, you know, Obama puts this in in play. Uh, Trump takes it out of play. Biden puts it back into play. You know, it's it's easy to see perhaps if we get a, a Republican president, it goes back out of play. And how long can that go on? Yeah, I mean, it's this. there are other areas of policy that go like this where you just ping pong based on presidential administrations. Uh, the long running one is something called the Mexico City policy, which is about Uh, prohibiting any sort of foreign aid going to governments around the world that promote reproductive health and abortion services. January 20th, every time there's a new administration, when it's the Democrats, uh, they reverse the Mexico City policy. When it's the Republicans, they reinstate it. Interesting. And I'm wondering if net neutrality is going to be one of those principles where the Democrats, uh, the Democratic members, the FCC are so committed to this principle. uh, They think that the regulation 
that was instituted in 2015 under Obama was necessary not just to maintain a free internet, um, but also giving the FCC more authority to protect national security on our broadband networks, um, implementing cybersecurity standards. Uh, and then the Republican members see this as heavy-handed federal regulation um, that actually plays no role in maintaining a free and open internet. Uh, so, yeah, I think we could see this kind of ping pong back and forth through presidential administrations. Uh, and I know that's frustrating for the industry because, as you said, they rely on certainty. Yeah. This article points out that for sure we're we're probably going to see uh, lawsuits from industry once the rulemaking is done, that uh, those lawsuits are, are inevitable. I think they're absolutely inevitable. The legal challenges will come on day one when this is published in the Federal Register. Uh, I think... The companies have obviously a large stake in uh, net neutrality rules. I think there's certainly um, profit potential in a less regulated industry uh, for companies like Verizon, AT&T, uh, etc. But yeah, I think there's no doubt that we're going to see litigation. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it here. Interesting move. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Danny Adamidis from Lumen's Black Lotus Labs. We're discussing No Rest for the Wicked. Hiatus Rat takes little time off in a return to action. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Urban and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.